You're about to experience a new way to thrive in martial arts by exploring who you are, what you love and standing up for what you believe in. It's time to rise because this is where we challenge and say no to outdated industry norms and say yes to change so that we create a healthier, happier and thriving martial arts community. I'm your host, Laurine Zuhake. Welcome to the Rise to Thrive podcast. Today, we have the pleasure of learning from Holly Baker-Bolchkovac. Holly is speaking to us from the ancestral lands of the Dulga-speaking Walbunja Yuin people of Southeast Australia. It is important that we honor and show respect. Holly is a clinical counselor and coach with background in natural and ancestral health, altered states and sacred space, martial arts, functional movement, conscious living and women's mysteries. She owns Motion Ninja Academy, a trauma and anxiety-informed natural movement and martial arts school. We will focus specifically on this realm and dive deep into vagal theory, co-regulation and neurodivergent students. Let's go! Welcome, Holly. Please introduce yourself and then let's dive right in. Thanks, Lauren. Um, well, I'm Holly Baker-Bolgevac. I live in southeast New South Wales in Australia and I run a little martial arts school called Motion Ninja Academy uh, where I get to do lots of experiments on nervous systems. <laughs> and also in my day job is I'm a counsellor, a clinical counsellor, and so I also get to do experiments on nervous systems there too. And I um, do some equine-assisted therapy and ecotherapy as well as in-clinic face-to-face. So pretty much my life is just experimenting with nervous systems, people, animals, nature, all of it. This is the thing. I think nervous system... It's just such a pervasive topic and often overlooked, especially just like in daily life. I mean, like when we do not really control our, I mean, to the point that you can control, but if you, and you don't have regulation methods, self-regulation or co-regulation methods um, to deal with your uh, nervous system, like often we are just reacting instead of responding and, and being in the present. So I think experimenting is a good thing, especially how we learn about ourselves and our environment. So one of the big things regarding nervous system is the vagus nerve. Let's maybe we can define what is the vagus nerve, where is it situated in the body, what does it do, or what should it do. Maybe we can just start right there. Great. I always like to say that it's like yeah, I, I think we we use like the colloquial of just nervous system, but really what I'm talking about is the vagal system or the polyvagal system, and that vagal nerve runs from the base of our skull and basically everywhere in our body, all the way through our, our eyes, our ears, all around the face, right down into the cervix for women. It attaches to every organ or it innervates every organ that we have. Uh, so basically any part of our body and physiological process is affected by the vagal system. And its job really is to be able to read information from inside ourselves, outside of ourselves, and between us and other systems to find out whether or not we're safe. And and if we're safe, then we survive. If we're not safe, then we have to have, I guess, strategies to make ourselves safe so we can survive. And that's why we hear of words like uh, phrases like fight or flight, freeze. Some people say fawn. That's a bit of a other topic. <laughs> but 
um, and and social engagement and and that regulative aspect of being together with people and how that can form safety or maybe can form threat depending on our own life experiences. So you mentioned that the vagus nerve touches like our eyes, our digestive systems. So if we are for a longer period of time unregulated, what are examples how we can feel that in our bodies? What can you share with us? Yeah, nice. Well, yeah, digestive system is a great one. So I think the one that most people will be familiar with is that feeling of a queasy tummy or a, a flip-flop in your stomach where something doesn't feel right and that is probably your nervous system kind of sending that physiological signal that says like things are not okay, like we need to do something about this. But other things can be, you know, any of the like really gross end of the digestive system that we don't like to talk about, um, but also right up through our facial, I guess, nerves, um, the way that we read faces, the way that we hear different voices is affected. So the, the difference between a growly voice and a, a happy talky voice like how we talk to babies and puppies all the time <laughs> all those things not only do they send messages to our system but our bodies will create those kind of sounds dependent on what, how we're feeling too right I think that's so fascinating that like I remember with me for instance when my eyes start twitching I know like oh I'm stressed I need like it's like the first sign that I kind of or maybe not the first but like one that I can that I realize that I need to step back a little bit I think everybody has a different one. Like my lower back, for instance, is also like my weakest weakest point in my body. So if there's too much, it will always go on my lower back. Whereas with other people, indeed, I know it will go to the stomach or sometimes somewhere else. I think um, learning for us to really kind of notice like, oh, when do I feel weird twitchings and things in my body, I think can give us so much information to kind of already step back before things really get bad. Because I mean, sometimes you just... We feel so disconnected, which is, of course, a problem with or a challenge with trauma is that we so are disconnected from our body so that we don't really sense when we maybe should take a step back or take a brief or, or a self-care day or a moment. So I think that, that the vagus nerve or the polyvagal theory is something that especially martial arts coaches, I think, should really learn more about. Yeah. So for martial arts coaches, what do you think are like the key things that they should know regarding the vagus nerve and how they can like experiment and play with it. Mm. Well, another piece I was thinking of as you said that was the twitchy thing is is important because the twitchiness of whatever part of your system is playing around is important to notice because if we get to the place where that same thing goes numb, you know, so if you have a numb face or you have a numb gut and you can't eat anymore, then we know that we've gone like too far. So I thought that was a really nice point to make there. Because that twitchiness or that mobility within our body, like mobilization, is the sign of threat. But it's also it can be related to like curiosity and play. Yeah. So we want some level of activation. We don't want the activation to be too extreme. Mm-hmm. And if it gets too overwhelming, then we get into those numb, sort of frozen states. Sorry, my cat's decided to attend us now. It's all right. I have my dogs outside of the door peeping. <laughs> <laughs> so I think for coaches, like, it, it's there's a lot of nuances that we have to learn around like whether or not our level of playfulness and curiosity and, and activation is okay for the people that we're working with. You know, like what feels like fun and playful for one person could feel overwhelming for another. So I'm sure you've spoken about on, on your podcast, like just open communication and, and really direct consensual kind of stuff that we need to do in our gyms. But also like having a sense of what your 
system feels like as a coach because nervous systems read other nervous systems and we're looking for information in between our systems as well as outside and inside of us. So if a coach doesn't even know like what's going on in their system, then like how are you supposed to read what's going on for everyone else and vice versa, then they're reading maybe a system that's feeling unsafe and then the students pick that up, right? I think that's a very valid point. It's also something we say in the Thrive Drive Method, like the trauma-informed course for coaches we offer, is that I'm like, I can teach you a lot about the neurobiology of trauma, how it may show up on the meds, how you can recognize it, how you can do it. But if you indeed don't show up in a specific way as a coach, you can't really apply the knowledge that you learned, like this applied knowledge is missing. And for that, you need to do also your own inner work. So the biggest part of our course in the end is an inner job. Yes, you will become trauma-informed. Yes, you learn all that too. But really, in the end, it will only become ultra-useful to you when you learn to know yourself better. How do you tick? What are obstacles you face? Can you regulate yourself? Like, if you come super stressed in, like, I noticed that um, it's getting better because we get more aware, but sometimes we just had a rough day happens. We're humans, right? But I came in and the kids, they had a good vibe. But I was just, I didn't have a bad vibe. I was just really tired. And that just completely changed the whole atmosphere. They were also tired, starting to be like annoying and all that kind of stuff. And that was really my nervousness and my vibe, I kind of regulated it in a, you know, in a not uh, growth and, and, and constructive way. So I'm like, oh my God, like they are really like kind of mirroring that because in the end I'm kind of like the leader in the room. So I also kind of make the room. So now we also learn, like, if I feel like that, I just play different games. I make sure, but I also tell them, I say, Hey, I have a rough day. Um, let's do these things together. And then they're so helpful. And that's neat what you say is the consent. And I also tell them I'm also human. I'm also not always on my best, but we can still make a super good class together. And that, that speaks to the safety that you've already created in that space, right? Like we couldn't show up if we were assholes to our students and just rock up to a class and be like, all right, I'm having a bad day. I need you guys to yeah, yeah. support me or whatever. <laughs> like no. that's not the vibe, but it's a continuous relationship that we that we create that's positive and safe so that we can reach out when we're in those spaces and so that they don't freak out and be like, oh, you know, because the systems that are in our nervous system are founded on our relationships with our parents. So you step in as a coach and you're kind of like the the parent, right? And, oh, mm-hmm. mommy's having a bad day. What am I supposed to do is not where we want them to be. No, We need them to be able to be like, oh, yeah, she's having a bad day. She's a person and that's okay. Exactly. There's no judgment right? It doesn't mean anything. It's just a situation and you can still have a great class. And like in our experience, every time when I realized I'm just very fair, I said, yeah, okay, let's play just some games to warm up to get, and usually I get energy from them. So, you know, kind of, they also regulate me. I mean, usually I'm the one co-regulating them, but they also have the ability to regulate me back when you have indeed this nice dialogue and distrust that you built on the safety. And it's so great because often then they come to me, especially those that are already longer there and they're like, oh, how can we help? And this, that, that comes naturally and they happily do it. So when I started teaching, when I just made many mistakes and, you know, didn't understand many things, sometimes it were like the most horrible classes because they didn't know what to do. I didn't know what to do because I was out of it. And now you just, everybody wants to make it work together. Everybody knows that it's normal. Uh, It happens and it doesn't happen often. The same goes for adult class or my yoga classes too. Sometimes I created a super active class and then they come in and I'm like, they do not need active today. (laughs) They need something else. So I also have this flexibility to like throw out the window and give them something else. I think it's always a dialogue 
but for that, you need to know yourself too as a coach. That's right. And and be able to read the room. Like I mostly work with children at the moment in terms of martial arts. And I find that sometimes I've, I need to just throw a state change in immediately to reset some nervous systems. And, you know, it might only be a couple of kids that are really struggling or mm-hmm. maybe struggling is not the right word, that are really activated. <laughs> but to make everyone feel safe, we need to sort of balance that out, right? We need to bring some people up, some people down. So those kind of quick state change exercises which could be like all right I just want you to run around the room for 60 seconds as crazy as you can and make as much noise as you can but then we come back together and we stop and we pause and we have what we call a focus position which just looks like a I guess like a tai chi sort of you know balanced position and now I just want you to be there and see what that's like and then get them talking about it like what just happened you know and just that often is enough or mm-hmm. yeah something similar to that you know but such a quick thing it doesn't need to be a huge practice it's just like how do we how do we shift this state immediately and sometimes that's good like you said for me too <laughs> that changes the room for me yeah I mean we're all part of it right and I think interrupting is also so good I mean like with adults I often find when I realize it's been hmm, I get like oh let's do a drinking break or we also do a game or sometimes I just tell like I don't know something funny I saw just to kind of get them out of it and then bring them back and as you say it's not something big like there's no speech there's no like I don't know, we start meditating for an hour or something. No, it's really like these small things. And I think what's so often overlooked in coaching is like these little things that make the biggest changes. Do you have other examples that listeners may, you know, can try out and experiment with? Well, I was thinking about just this week, um, I noticed we brought in a lot of new games. I'd just done a bunch of training and I had all these games that I wanted to play with them and I was so excited. But I was noticing that because the energy was so high, because it was fun and, you know, all of that, there's a couple of the kids that are a bit quieter and they were sort of pulling back. Mm-hmm. And I thought, okay, we're just going to keep playing the game. But now this, this time it's a silent game. So we're just doing silence and just that changed the state of the room because they have to come into mm-hmm. themselves and they have to use their eye contact and their body language and so they're they're becoming more mindful in the moment I didn't have to say to them like I want you to be mindful and concentrate on your body and da 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 so it's like no the only rule we've changed is silence can you do this silently and it shifts everything and then those kids that were feeling maybe a bit overwhelmed with the craziness of the space they're able to smooth in a bit more too and feel like oh it's okay I still fit here it's okay for me to be here Mm -hmm. so I think sound is one that we forget about a lot in terms of vagal systems and in the training that I just did, it was in a much larger dojo than I ever use. And there were three classes going on at once and I was feeling overwhelmed. <laughs> like Ooh, I, got, I got tired that is so overwhelming. And I thought, oh, yeah, this is like this is something that we, you know, if that's the environment that you're training in all the time, you don't even realise that that's a thing. Um, whereas for me it was like super overwhelming. <laughs> no, I know what you mean. Like we recently, we, I mean like a year and a half ago, we moved from the city to the countryside. And then at one point, we just came back to to eat in a restaurant where we used to eat the other place. And that's really close to a um, very busy station and all that. And we were like, wow, it's here so overwhelming because here's just quiet. Like it's all nature around us. Like you see deer, everything just like from out of your window. And it's it's fascinating how you then realize like what you are confronted with on a daily basis when we still like live there. And also what you said about silence, like with the kids, we always start with a short like kind of meditation kind of thing in the beginning and the end. So the parents are always like, wow. So they come in and they run wild, they play. And then I'm like, okay, we're going to line up. We're going to start. And then we, they do this thing and they, whatever it is that they do, but it's quiet. And 
after that, the atmosphere is serene because you sense like they kind of centered themselves and they know, okay, now we're going to train. Now we're going to warm up. We're going to play a game or whatever it is. And in the end, we do the same. And it's cool because they, they always we do VJ, so they spar. So then they're all super activated because, of course, they try to, to submit each other. And I don't know. And then they line up. And after that, you feel this, this, this calming down, which I think is so special, especially need for silence. I mean, what we also have done, it's actually from an exercise from Oxygen Advantage. It's like a way how you can optimize your breathing. And basically, you tape your mouth shut. So you're forced to breathe through the nose. And at one point, one day, the kids were just so loud. And we just didn't know anymore what to do. So we started experimenting because we did this with the adults. And I said, okay, we're just going to focus on breathing correctly. So they all got the tape. I said, when it gets wet, it means you still... Um, breathe too much through your mouth. So we're really going to try to breathe if you want, like if you get claustrophobic, of course not, but for those, and they got it. And it was so crazy because of course they couldn't talk anymore. I mean, it was funny. They were like, mm, to each other, but they realized they couldn't really <laughs> communicate. And then it became so calm. And what we then noticed, and that was for me absolutely mind-blowing, was that during sparring, there were a few kids that I know they take longer for certain techniques and stuff to learn. I don't care. But all of a sudden, they just started doing all kinds of things I didn't know that they even could. Mm. Simply because now they were yeah. focused, they were breathing correctly because there was no other way. And, and their system was switched on. Yes. And they did stuff. I was like, wow, that's like some serious high level shit. <laughs> like some things I'm like, we didn't teach them, but they do it. And um, what was even more mind-blowing was that sometime later, because we did it a few times, that then there was a kid said to me, Lorraine, I really do my best to focus, but it doesn't really work. Can I have tape? Because it makes me feel better. Mm, that's so amazing. I, that's such a good idea. That yeah. was so amazing. And I mean, this kid was eight or something, like super young. And I'm like, of course you can have it. And then of course others wanted to. And I mean, when the parents, the first time I was like, uh, this is not bondage for, for children. This is just like, you know, and the parents were like, no, 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 no. Leave it on, leave it on. We can keep it at home, you know, as well. Yeah. <laughs> but this is indeed like this experiment. And I found it so crazy how quickly it changed the atmosphere and how they felt better. They Even they, they immediately realized like, wow, this makes us happier. We get more fruit. Like it was so, such a game changer. Yeah, that's awesome. I actually sleep with tape and I've never thought of really? doing that in class. But I do ask them like, you know, see if you can breathe into your belly with your mouth closed. Mm -hmm. But adding the tape would be amazing. I'm definitely stealing that one. That's great. But I, I think anything where they, where they have to come into their body to breathe, because, mm -hmm. you know, I remember growing up like we were always – so I did, you know, all stand-up martial arts and karate and, and these sort of breathing techniques where we were using our hands to kind of, mm -hmm. you know, pull in the breath and pull out. But it always felt to me like it was in my hands. It wasn't in my body. Right. So that cue of like bringing them down into their belly breathing or even breathing into their feet or breathing into just one hand or, you know, shifting it around and being able to be present with their breath I think is another really sudden state shift like we know it, it only takes eight cycles of breath like eight breaths to change the physiology in your body so yeah and I talk to them about that a lot and I and I ask them what did you notice that changed you know and so really trying to get them, them to articulate it rather than me giving them a lecture about how important it is to breathe but the tape's a great idea because it's fun <laughs> it's different it is fun it's fun as a challenge you know because we're always a bit like yeah you know when, when it falls off it means that you still were like uh, you know you have wet breathing for your mouth you know yeah. and then like oh 
don't want that, you know. So it's 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 really cute. I mean, of course, we say always like you know only if you want because of course no, no force. And I can also imagine if you have asthma. I mean, we had I think we have a few, but for them it actually worked in a way too. Mm. But of course, like always consent. But usually they, I think kids are still open to try things out anyway. Totally. Yeah. It was just the that was like one of the biggest success stories in terms of how it how it just how all of a sudden kids we thought weren't so far we realized they were already there. Yeah. We just we just didn't know yet how to activate it, and then it became easier also for them because they felt that they were activated, so it was also easier for them to refine it. I think they, many of the kids were not aware that they actually already were there themselves, which I think was just this joy of discovery. Absolutely. And something they could find for themselves. So would your listeners understand the difference in those breaths? Do we need to talk about that? Yeah, let's talk about that. Yeah. So the way that I understand it is a, a diaphragmatic breath really activates that parasympathetic chill system and the sympathetic system is activated by the chest breathing so the much faster harder breathing that we do when we go for a run or something like that most people know how to do that chest breathing most people are if you know if we're doing any kind of exercise we go straight there we're doing these big (laughs) you know open mouth breaths and in any of my classes it's about as soon as we've done that now I want you to try and bring yourself as quickly as you can safely back into your belly and back into that that breathing space where you can have your mouth closed. That's the big piece I always say, like, just try it with your mouth closed. Some kids will, you know, their mouths will pop open. But uh, that's how we then train the system to be able to go in and out of sympathetic without being like in a stress state, you know, and then over time that becomes a way for us to manage our own stress. Yeah, because you widen also their tolerance and in, in, in window of tolerance in doing so. Like we have this also in our self-defense classes, we have exercises where we in a gentle and a safe way, go step by step towards overloading the nervous system. And then it's like, can you still think whilst, uh, you know, so we don't want to go that the rational brain goes offline. We don't want to go, of course, that far, but we kind of like want to see like, what is this point where you can still get things done rationally that you don't start reacting? And then of course, the other thing is after that's done, how quickly can you calm down again? Because you need both. Like it's one thing that you can stay in this high aroused state and that you can still be effective but also many people get stuck. I mean, I was one of those, like I was ultra effective, but I get stuck there. So what was missing with me as a younger person was like, how quickly can I also calm down? So it's, it's definitely both sides. And I think breathing is just in that regard, the, I wouldn't say necessarily the easy, maybe simple, but not easy, but like it all starts kind of there. Yeah. And it's quick. Yeah. It's quick and you don't have to really teach anyone anything. Mm -hmm. Something that you could kind of add to the tape idea in terms of getting them to physiologically breathe better would be to lay down and put some sort of weight on their diaphragm. I've done that quite a bit. Um, When we were doing a lot of Zoom classes, that's how I'd start the class because they always had something in the room that they could use, um, whether it was a cushion or a book or something. And so laying flat on their back and then breathing, because if you say to a kid, like, breathe into your diaphragm, they don't even know what that means. No. But if you you put it on that soft, squishy bit under your ribs and then you breathe and you can see it moving, now I've got like a visual – activation of what's happening in my body and so then suddenly now I know where my diaphragm is right yeah what we often do is like if we don't have other stuff like that they have the fingers together and when they breathe in the fingers separate and go back so they have like this this also like in case people don't have any not enough heavy stuff if they want to try it out mm-hmm. then just out of my own curiosity you say you tape your mouth when you sleep why do you do that yeah, for, for the same reason, because I was a mouth breather, real bad. Mm-hmm. Uh, always slept with my mouth open. 
and I went through a lot of uh, dental stuff to widen my mm-hmm. jaw and palate and all those sorts of things because over time from mouth breathing, my palate had narrowed and all my airways were a lot more narrow. Mm-hmm. And so that was one of the first pieces that the dentist wanted me to do was to tape. And I was it was creepy, right? The first time is like it is this weird feeling of like being gagged or being stopped. Or, yeah. you know, I'm sure there's some big trauma points that could be there for people. Mm-hmm. Um, but I just kind of pushed through it and it changed my sleep immediately. Like the, the quality of sleep was so much better because I was getting the breath where it needed to be and all the oxygen and all the bits. You know, I'm sure he explains that in the Oxygen Advantage book. Um, and so it's it's changed everything, and now I can't sleep without it. <laughs> yeah, well, it makes you feel better. So that's yeah. No, I think the breath is just is what I remember when also in uh, in India when when I was there for uh, the yoga training. Uh, we also had an Ayurvedic doctor who did both Western medicine and like Ayurveda, which I really liked. So he also really understood both worlds, and he said like, yeah. When people come to me and they have specific pains in their stomach or twitching, he just sent them back with like teas that activate kind of also already your nervous system and breathing or chanting. Because when you chant, you naturally have longer exhales and inhales. Like I do often a test also with uh, our yogis, not to stress them out, but I say, okay, one minute. I want you to breathe and I want you to count how many breaths you take. I'm not going to judge you. You don't need to tell me. And then I say, when we're not, of course, not training in rest and digest, you kind of want four kind of per minute roundabout. If you have more than 10 or 12, then it means you're definitely going towards the stressful. And if you have even more, obviously, your nervous system is struggling. And then I see then those eyes like, I don't want to stress you out more. I'm going to teach you now how to get this back. So usually we do like a primary breathing or just like they have to take a deep breath and make a humming sound or something like that. And all of them, usually they have that in a minute, three, four breaths. And there you can see also in their countenance how they how it all becomes softer. And it takes one minute, one minute, and they feel really better. And I think especially in the stressy lives people have nowadays, you have kids, you have work, you have, I don't know, housework, groceries, all these things you need to do. It just takes you one minute. You do a few times a day, one minute, you'll feel so much better. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. <laughs> it's, um, and I think there's a lot of room for coaches to think about some of the warm-up activities and the games that you do. How could you bring these two ideas together? Because we're sort of talking about it being specifically about, oh, this is how we're breathing. But are there things that are happening in your class already that you could just bring attention to the belly or to the nose breathing or something that um, is, yeah, it's not like you have to add an extra thing, right? Yeah, I, I notice it, especially with uh, in jiu-jitsu when we spar and we have new people, it's super overwhelming. Like, obviously, it takes, especially jiu-jitsu, it takes a few classes before you have seen all the positions, before you understand where you want to be, where you don't want to be. So it can often escalate, not necessarily in an aggressive way, but uh, escalate that they get super like red purple faces they breathe super fast and they don't listen anymore they don't hear you like they're in this complete tunnel vision in this complete fight flight situation and sometimes when other the other student senses oh they're giving more and more and more they also give more and more and that's how you like clash so we are also like when we realize that some of us start singing when they also start to use too much uh, strength. So they, they're like, what? So they just start singing. So they just calm down. Or others just like, okay, let's take a deep breath. Because I tell them like, I know you can get out, but you don't get out by sheer force. 
we need to use our head a little bit. So this co-regulation. So maybe we can go into the topic of co-regulation. Maybe you can explain to our listeners what is co-regulation? Why is this crucial, especially also in coaching or parenting situations? And yeah, take it from there. Mm, I love this topic. Uh, <laughs> I've got a million things going through my head now. Uh, so when, I think one piece that's very important is the idea that co-regulation has to become has to come before self-regulation. So as a tiny infant, humans do not have the capacity to look after ourselves on our own. And so we learn so much of how whether or not we're safe from the people around us, from the older people around us. And so if we're around people who don't put off safe vibes, it's going to be harder for us to learn how to be safe. Yeah. So that's kind of like, I mean, that's how our system develops. And so then become an adult and if you've never actually had that space to co-regulate with other people, it can get to the other end where people actually feel unsafe now because my only relationship with people is that it's, it doesn't feel good, it doesn't feel safe. Mm-hmm. So the good news is that we can sort of, you know, our system is plastic and so we can reform that and create the attachments and the regulation that we need through relationship with other people. And as coaches, we are in like this super privileged space to be mentoring and leading people. And so we like, we are able to give them a safe co-regulated space just by being who we are. And vice versa, we could also be like, you know, really unregulated and make that a worse situation. So this is where we said before, like we need to be aware of our own system is really important so that we can show up as coaches to be able to be that co-regulative safe space. And what it means to be co-regulated is like, can you attune to your student in the way that they need to be right now? It's not standing there telling them, no, no, we're not, we're not being stressed right now. <laughs> you know, that is not co-regulation. Like, no, we're all being calm. <laughs> it's like instant, instant stress. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's going to make more stress. Yeah. It's kind of, I think of co-regulation as meeting somebody where they are. And then when we meet there, then through our own regulated space, we are able to bring that person in, into another place. Yeah. But it doesn't happen just by us both being in the same room. There has to be an attunement or a meeting there. So for listening coaches for whom this is all completely new, can you give an example how they can do that when they realize that um, the student is not in the moment in the class, so to speak? Yeah. Okay. So so I guess, do we need to talk about how they would even know that a student had left the space? Yeah. Maybe we'll start there. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, some of those things you just talked about, like the shortness of breath and the turning red and like they're just then their brains are not switched on anymore, right? That's often a good sign because our nervous system doesn't work from the thinking place. It happens way before anything else is happening and it sends signals to our body like a red face or like hold your breath or run really fast or punch somebody. All those signals happen without the brain checking in and and doing thinking. So even if you notice that one of your students were just not their normal self, that could be a sign that they're already dysregulated. Uh, it could be that high activation, like you said, red face and puffing, but it also could be a shutdown. They're sort of, they're moving across or out of the room or off, off the mats or, mm-hmm. this, or their eyes are going down, you know. A big piece of knowing if someone's regulated is whether or not they can make eye contact and feel okay about it. 
And so sometimes as a coach, making eye contact can bring people back online. But it just depends too because sometimes it's even difficult for them to make the eye contact. So there needs to be a few other steps between. So with that in mind, if you had someone that you notice something's not right, they don't seem to be fully present in the class anymore, maybe how you start is like just kind of coming alongside them and sitting or standing and just saying, oh, I've noticed that you're doing whatever it is that you're doing. Do you need someone with you? Would you like to breathe together? You know, just little gentle things that show that I'm here with you, but I'm not forcing you to do anything new. Mm-hmm. You're not going up and going, you need to make eye contact with me. That's going to bring you back. <laughs> you know, <laughs> And it depends on your relationship with a person, obviously. I mean, I have a client that I see that really does break the eye contact and goes away. And we've got a relationship where it's safe for me to say, are you ready to make eye contact again? Mm-hmm. And if she says no, then that's no, no. Okay. I'm still here. I'm still going to be here regardless of what you need to do. And maybe that's a frame that coaches need to take. Like I can be here with you in whatever way you need me to be and I'm not going to force you to do anything different. I think this is so important. That's actually something I learned from our therapy dog. Um, She senses before we do, before the kids do something, you know, when something is up or also with adults, right? And what I noticed her do when a kid was then in the corner or, you know, it was crying about something or I don't know. And sometimes I couldn't stop them crying. They just, you know, didn't work. And I then sent her, I mean, I mean, sending her, usually she was like, move away. <laughs> like, let me do my thing. She knows. And she would sit next to them or flop on her back and, you know, gently nudge. But I realized my dog doesn't, I mean, my dog communicates, but she doesn't talk. She doesn't want anything. She just is there unapologetically, no pressure, no nothing. She's just there and waits patiently until the student is ready also kind of to open up. And yeah, she has some physical touch, which of course in certain situations we should definitely not touch. But I think with animals, I think they have some more leeway than we have. Um, But it's amazing how much quicker Yuki can uh, co-regulate some of our students. Like we have also neurodivergent students um, for the listeners students with autism or HSD and um, they respond so well to not all but many tend to respond well to animals and like it's amazing how much more my dog can do to them in the spur of the moment than I can but what I learned most from Yuki is just indeed to be there to not expect anything to not come there with this kind of hero savior kind of like oh I learned how to do this no (laughs) just to be there like we have one kid and um Usually he came a long way. I mean, in the beginning, touch was extremely difficult and was very quickly overwhelmed. But now we have this relationship where when he sets out, we have this kind of rule that when I, I always ask, but usually he doesn't want to communicate. So I say, okay, when you feel better, you just come back on the mats. And he does. So even though he's also like super young, but he takes ownership there that when he senses there, he comes back, but then he's also really back. And now we even get to the point that I can tell him a little bit when I'm like, come on, you know, like now, because sometimes some people do need a little gentle kick sometimes or kick more like to, you know, not physically, but to interrupt <laughs> also like a little bit, but that takes time to create such trust that they also can handle. Like you can't, you can't do with everyone. That's it. And that's it. And yeah. as you say, I like that you say experimenting because 
I don't know how it's in Australia, but in Germany, like when people sign up, we do ask them to tell us if their kid, I don't say that they have anything, but if they just need special needs, like we're all different. And it helps me as a coach a lot when I know, I know that if I have 10 kids with autism, they will be different, but at least I know I have to look out for certain things. And in Germany, it's kind of a taboo thing. Even many clubs don't accept kids, especially when they were on medication and the medication wears off after school. And then they come, of course, after school to the classes. So they say no. Wow. So they send their kids and they don't tell you because there's this taboo mm -hmm. and shame on them. Mm -hmm. Where I always say, like, I don't see the diagnosis. I see the person, <laughs> you know. Mm -hmm. And what is fascinating is that we then step by step, we didn't notice things. So we have to experiment also a lot because I'm like, okay, so I sense this is not working, what does work? So my question is, what could you say to coaches that are maybe in a similar situation that they are presented with a kid that nothing wrong with the kid, but it just needs a slightly different approach to get them integrated in the group to feel safe and, and, and good in the group so that they can open up and learn? What yep. would you, what would be a point so pretty much my entire class are neurodivergent kids. <laughs> I don't, I mean, so, you know, I've got a small school, so it's easy for the parent to come and talk to me about the kid if they need to, that sort of thing. Uh, but I just kind of assume that everyone has special needs. <laughs> so, And if I create a safe enough space, then that can be okay. So from that perspective, it's like, Basically, if if you find that there's a something in your class that isn't working for even one kid, then it needs to change because it's prob you're probably doing it because it's always been done or, mm -hmm. you know, so it's like start there. But then probably once you start there, you'll start expanding from there. Like what is it about the thing? If you stepped outside of it, a lot of the time we're doing things that we had done for us when we were learning as students and so it's just the thing that you do but if you step down and looked at that what didn't you notice is there too much noise is there um, just not enough ritual and rhythmical kind of thing so that the kid understands what's about to happen you know I find with my kids I really need they need to understand what we're going to do that day mm -hmm. and why we do it, you know, all those pieces that come over time. Even things like um, where do we put our shoes when we arrive? Where do we put our drink bottles? Just these simple things that seem like obvious maybe, but for a child who is not sure or, or and an adult, <laughs> this is not just children, for anyone who's not 100% sure of their space in the world, then we need to create as many like structures for them that just mm -hmm, mm -hmm. that add to the safety so that their brains aren't having to go you know I I try not to use the term trauma informed for my school I say anxiety informed because I don't want to tell 15 families that their kids are traumatized but they all know that their kids feel anxious so I can go there yeah so if you were anxious and you were stepping into a space what would you need mm -hmm. and then add that into your class it's it's not rocket science, <laughs> like you know. It's not. It's not things that we have to. Um, we don't have to make anything up. It's all there. But what? Yeah. What would you need? Start there, because I think for adult coaches who have been through the martial arts system for a while, we learn to push through things. Yeah. And now we need to re re understand our system so that we're not just pushing through. We can't expect the next generation to push through. Does that make sense? It does. I also think like many people have different ways of thinking and learning. And I think it's one of these classic biases that coaches have is that how you learn is how you also teach. But that is just a, a minor fraction of your class. Like you have 
I don't know, say you'd say there are four thinking and learner types, then you maybe only accommodate one or maybe at best two, but that's it. And I think that for coaches to kind of go back, like, what are you? Are you a visual learner? Um, do you learn through touch? Do you learn through listening? Or maybe it's a mixture and be like, what, how do I not learn and how can I accommodate? And also she said, like, it's no rocket science. I'm like, no, but I think for the generation that is always used to kind of push through, they hardly kind of took a step back and were thinking like, okay, so where I am now, what am I doing? Like, I think slowly I really notice more and more people start to understand also the message that we're getting out, whether it's trauma-informed, anxiety-informed, or like person-centered. Like there are many, I mean, in, in a perfect world, we don't need these, um, these, these words at all, you know, if we just all do it. But I think <laughs> slowly people start to understand I think that they need to do the inner work that the generation pushed through they kind of they just carried all the loads and somehow made it work but they never really did the inner inside work to see like to stop and think like okay it works but is this really the healthiest way to do this and indeed to not enforce it on the younger generations because I know there are things I did where I'm like I would not recommend that yes it worked but not not on the long run yeah, that's right. And it just made me think about um, one of the other things that coaches can do is watch how other kids or other adults respond to the one that is having trouble. Because often like like your dog, those nervous systems actually know what someone needs maybe more than we do. And so just watching that, I mean, I have a, mm-hmm. I have a lot of you know, intergenerational kind of, I don't have just one age group in my classes. So there'll be siblings and there'll be things that are going on or friendship groups or things. And mm-hmm. so like, just mm-hmm. watch that and see how they respond because they might give you some ideas. Like you don't want it to go Lord of the Flies, but you just want like, <laughs> like see how they interact. And similarly, if, if you're teaching adults and you've got friend groups in the class, like what's happening in that friend group that makes it safe for those people and how can you then expand that out to the rest of the group mm-hmm. as an example people naturally do it it's what we do we look after each other yeah that's a good point from a nervous system perspective because it makes us feel safe when other people feel safe that is a very good point i will start observing again like this is good i like this this input because this thing i'm like in the learning business and like Again, the kids teach me so much, if not more, in return than what we teach them. So I think, uh, yeah, and adults as well. Yeah, we'll have a look at how these indeed these friendship units kind of how they how they go. Because usually when a kid, we have also siblings, and sometimes when one sibling is out, whatever, of course the other sibling immediately comes to check whether everything is alright and that sort of thing. Yeah. And also when somebody cries, usually the whole group comes, you know, where I sometimes I'm like, I know you all mean well, but yes. give them some space, just a little bit that they can, they can breathe. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, but I always realize, and I say like, I'm so glad that you guys care. You will be all right. Thank you for checking in. Uh, the best you can do is to kind of like continue um, that we have the moment to kind of check and maybe do some reorientation activities when necessary, depending like what's happened. But it's true. Typically, they immediately want to help. Yeah, it makes us feel better. So let's dive maybe a little bit into adults. Because my experience, kids are still much more open and playful. And I'm not going to say it's necessarily easier, but somehow they're just more open to new things. And sometimes with adults, I feel it's harder to get through the, all these layers of life, of stress, of burden. 
Um, do you maybe have any pointers there? I mean, I can imagine with us in martial arts, you have maybe also some people that they're like, what are you doing? Like, go away. Like, because as you say, when they did not have this role model in the beginning, this co-regulation from the parents, that they see that more as a threat. Um, what are things that you maybe can work around it or what? My big strategies for adults has been creating community in the class like creating that inclusive feeling. So I have lots of rituals in my classes of this is how we start, you know, we all in the warm-up, like everything in my class is a circle. I don't do lines. I know that's really unusual for martial arts practice, but I can do that because I have small groups, you know. Mm -hmm. So we start in a circle. So we're all face-to-face. We're not looking at someone's back. We don't have a hierarchy. Everyone's the same. And so from there, like as we're warming up, we're sharing something from the week. Even in the kids' classes, they're sharing. It gets all the words out as well before we start. Mm -hmm. (laughs) But for adults, it's a way to like, you know, just land. And then similarly at the end of the class, coming back and having some sort of ritualized way of sharing. So in the small group, it might be just looking at the person next to you and saying something great about them. Um, It could be like talking about what your next goal is. Yeah. So a lot of the time there'll be some skill that you struggled with, like this is the thing I want to practice or this week I'm just making sure I make more time in my calendar, whatever, it can be anything. But those little touch points create this inclusive community where everyone realizes, oh yeah, we're all just people in the end. And it doesn't matter what their belt is, like they're still working on something or, Mm -hmm. um, I mean, I do women's classes. And so the women talk about all the stresses of parenting and work and all these things that oh wow she's like me (laughs) I'm not on my own and that then creates a safe space because everyone knows that it's okay to be there it doesn't matter who you are doesn't matter what shape you are all that stuff yeah and indeed as you also say that they realize they're not alone because I think that so many feel lonely as if they kind of carry the whole burden of the world right and then when you realize that we all carry a bit that makes it easier yeah I think Especially in my, my experience, most, of course, of B2J, there's a lot of hierarchy. And I mean, in some old school schools, it's you even have things like uh, when you are lower ranked, you can't ask a higher ranked to rule with you. You know, they have to ask you, which I find absolutely ridiculous because I'm like, who cares? Yeah, it's so gross. Yeah. I'm like, what? Because especially me as being tiny, like I often went out because some that were also white belts, they were just too aggressive and my body would get injured. So I trusted the higher belts much more because they knew a lot more. They were much more technical. They could also understand my needs a bit more. Like they made me work and I I would always still be, of course, on this receiving end, but I would not really get injured and I would learn a lot more. But I, yeah, some in the beginning said like, oh, but you learn, you cannot do that or that's not done. And I think especially in the BJ world, there's also a lot of cult problems and this sort of thing where this kind of safe, non-judgmental community is so hard to create. So I think there that is really something where many bit more uh, high school based martial arts communities should really reconsider how they can change that. Mm. I have the, I guess, the privilege <laughs> that I barely work with men. Most of my work is with women. And I can imagine that kind of inclusion would be a whole other level when you've got a mixed group as well. So I can't, I'm not even going to try and speak to that. What I have found is that as a woman teacher with men in the class, there's a need for me to take a position of power that I don't take with the women so that the men listen to me. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's been my experience and that's part of the reason why I don't like to work with men because I just I don't want to play that game. <laughs> so I'm not interested in being there in that space, you know. And it could just be the men that were there, obviously. But in terms of like 
how do you express to people how important it is that you want to hold a specific type of space? I just find that it's easy just to say it straight up. Like my interest in running this class is that we all have a safe space and that it is inclusive. And so you might see me do things that are unusual in other spaces and that's the reason I'm doing them. Mm -hmm. You know, that's what we're here for. People appreciate that because they're like, oh, okay, that's, again, it's like understanding what they're in for before they get there, right? Yeah, I think my experience with men is like, um, even if you have like 10 BJ gyms, we do all cater to a slightly different niche. And it takes a while to kind of get there. So in the beginning, I definitely had this that I had to show, you know, like, yeah, also when I have boobies, I can still teach you good jiu-jitsu. Um, and also in Munich, there are not many female teachers and, and those that are usually indeed only teach women. I'm one of the few that just teach everyone, <laughs> you know, like <laughs> kids, teens, every gender, doesn't matter. Um, but it was definitely sometimes a struggle because I'm tiny. Like if I would also be tall, you know, then I also can rectal them if I want to. And um, look, my husband, he can tap them like typewriter if it's needed, right? And even though I have the skill... I'm not big or strong enough to kind of like pull it out. It takes longer. I have to tire them out and then I will get the tap. But I also realized slowly as we get our message out also on our website, like what our core values are, what we stand for. We have now like a bunch of new who say, oh, I'm so happy. And, and they are also big and muscular and everything, you know, the two that you would think like, oh, they would prefer these uh, basement type of dojos. Um, they are so happy that here it's not this cutthroat mentality, that it's not like showing who's boss or who is like the, you know, has the biggest. They really enjoy that people are here for learning. So I start to also realize that step by step, we also attract the people we want to work with. Absolutely. Regardless of gender. And I really, I really love the group of uh, male athletes we have. Um, like they work hard. They're also very accommodating and ultra respectful. And it's so nice. Like we have also quite some women that are higher ranked and it's, it's kind of like gatekeeping. Like if they have issues with being like dominated by a woman, then I know this is not a good fit. And when they get a bit mean about it, I also tell them, I said, Hey, we have female instructors here. Um, if you have problem, then this is probably not the school for you. And I say this directly. And then they often also have to like think in themselves, like what is their relationship with women? That's one that they are confronted with and some never come back and some do. They mm. realize that actually what they were doing was like, why, right? So it's also an opportunity for them to either change something in their system and in their belief system or not, but at least like it is filtered out kind of right in the beginning. Well, what I hear you saying is like, you've got a boundary on it. Like your gym has a boundary that says, this is how we work with all genders yeah. and you can either be part of that or not. Yeah. And I think that's when we talk about anxiety and trauma-informed, whatever, like we as coaches, we have to be very clear about what the boundaries are, but not just say them, but like make it very clear around the room that that's what it is. And then people feel safe again because they know what to expect and they know who you are and what how you're going to back up your integrity. Yeah. I mean, we also had a bunch leave, right, at one point because there was something that they did not like and we set boundaries, very clear boundaries. And then they indeed left and it came unexpected and at first it hurt. But on the other hand, I thought, yeah, but if they don't respect our boundaries, then indeed it doesn't fit. So actually I was very thankful that they then left because clearly we are not the school for them. And maybe a different school is, maybe not, I don't know. But clearly what we stand for did not align with them anymore, especially when we had to enforce it. Um, there, that we really at one point had to enforce like really quite harshly, not in a, not in an authoritarian way, but just like this is how we work, point. 
And um, I think some people are afraid of like losing members and this and that, but I'm kind of like, I don't want to work with people that go over my boundaries all the time because that is disrespectful, even if they don't necessarily have ill intent, but they then in doing so create unsafe environments for the other students. And I rather lose a few that are a danger to the community we have created of non-judgment growth because also others will come. But I mean, for me, it's about that those that are there, that they feel safe. So I also want to say to coach in general, like it is normal that you ever now and then also um, lose students. Maybe even that you thought you were really on friendly terms and maybe you were also close at one point. But yeah, things change. And usually I'm like, if you don't respect my boundary, then you're not my friend. Yeah. Yeah. That's so good. And, you know, it's that whole niche thing. The more that you be clear about who it is that you do work with and who, and you learn that as you go through with your experimenting, <laughs> then it it becomes easier and easier to find those people. They match to you. They match to the other people there. Everyone feels good about it. But then your work gets easier because mm-hmm. you're not trying to cater to all these different types of people. You're just doing the thing that you're like made for. And yeah, there'll be other schools that don't do that and that's okay. They get other people. Yeah. There's no competition in this work. I think that's, I hold that so strongly. Like I, I don't care if I have two kids or a thousand kids in the class. Like not that I would do a thousand kid class, but you know, that would be. it's, it's not because I'm better or worse than someone else or I, you know, it's just no, we're the right match and that's what works for us. Yeah. I don't want all the kids that aren't that match because that would be exhausting for me. I think this is key what you just say right there, because like also where we are in Munich, there are many BJ schools, right? And I also never see it because um, then lately there was like another one close to it also opened and I was like, I don't care because I know that our niche is completely different. And even though we're teaching the same martial art, I mean, like, hell, they may even meet on competition, right? And they both will do well. We may win, we may lose, whatever. It's normal. But we are just so niched in a specific way that you then at one point, once word spreads, you also attract. And as you say, right now, I also find that it gets much easier because we are very concept-based, growth-minded, that we're not like these kind of... uh, boot camp, uh, you know, kind of military, because those you also have, and and some like it, and it's totally fine. But we now also get those that like our approaches. And as you say, it gets so much easier because, yeah, you're just in sync. Yeah, and it's that's actually a gift to your students because they know that they get to keep showing up with people that are like them. And if we want to create, you know, I think everybody in any gym environment, whether it's just movement or martial arts, like we want to create community. We want people to feel safe with each other. And so what better gift to our students to make sure that we are holding that space that we know is the space for us so that they get what they expect and they want. And they know when they don't want it. <laughs> like if they walk in and go like, oh, no, these people aren't my people, great. Yeah, it's information, right? I th- I often say to people like when you notice something that you like or you don't like, you don't need to judge it. It just It's just information because many people immediately want to jump to conclusions or want to conclude something or say something about their whole being like, oh, I must suck or this. I'm not it's like just cut this out. It's just information. When I see that a kid somehow is super dysregulated on any given day, I don't judge them for that they are bad kids. I'm just like, okay, it's information. And then I start to kind of, you know, put on my detective's hat and try to figure out what's going on and see how you can kind of, you know, uh, space it out. And I think that would be also one for coaches, like don't take things personally. Yes, because definitely. You don't know what's going on in other people's lives. Whatever reason they're not coming into the gym is probably not you. (laughs) Yeah. All right. Last question. What is your favorite quote or question or things that you would like to give to a listener? 
Oh, I think what I said to you in my little pre-interview thing is that Maya Angelou quote about, you know, you just do the best you can until you know better. And then when you know better, you do better. Um, that one, it fits with this experimentation, curiosity thing that we're talking about, right? Like if we all just get around doing our best, it gets to change. Like it's not the best that you'll ever be. It's just the best for now. And then if we get to just have better and better and better. I love that. It's just like really just this growth, which is going forward. And as I said, we will always have some setbacks and some misfortunes. But I think when you take it again as information, you're like, okay, this didn't work. Good. Let's move on. Try something else. I think then you just always become a better version of yourself. So I think it's a very powerful quote. And there's no failure there. Like it just because something doesn't work doesn't mean that it's a failure because it's just information to for the next success. It's a success that you found out that it doesn't work. <laughs> I agree. I see it the same way. Thank you, Holly, so much. I think that our listeners really will learn a lot. Also, because some are also, of course, many are parents or also teachers in schools, universities. I think many can learn a lot from this. So thank you so much for sharing your expertise, your knowledge and your experience and like examples. We have some really great hands-on examples here. And um, do give me your contact details and your website so that if people want to reach out to you, that they can easily contact you. And um, yeah, wish you a lovely day. Thank you. Thank you, Holly, for this lovely conversation and the offering of many strategies and examples to our listeners. I'm sure they can immediately adopt and experiment with them. For those wanting to connect to Holly, please find her details in the show notes below. Do reach out to us when you have further questions and feedback. Thank you and wishing you a lovely week.